Hello and welcome to Collectability Podcast, the podcast about all things Patek Philippe. My name is Carlos Torres and I will be your host for the duration of this season of conversations and interviews with personalities who have long ago been caught by the net of horology, fine watchmaking and Patek Philippe in particular. Dr. Helmut Krott has one of those rare personalities in the watch collecting world that sets him apart among his peers. Not only is he frequently one of the most knowledgeable people in the auction room, but he is also the owner of an exceedingly generous and pleasant personality. He is always ready to inform and advise those, like me, who are convinced that what they don't know vastly exceeds what they do know. Dr. Helmut Krott has a career associated with watches and watch collecting that spans over 50 years. Half a century spent handling, examining, analyzing and studying the rarest and most valuable timepieces in the world. If we were conducting this interview in his native German language, we would definitely have to say that Dr. Krott has an enormous Leidenschaft for utterly exquisite and relevant watches and Patek Philippe pieces in particular. But why Dr. Krott, you might ask? Well, Because he actually has a medical degree, a profession that ended up being very early overlapped by his particular passion for watches. He was never shy of enterprise, so in the early years he bought and sold diamonds, had a real estate business and even went to organize a music festival in his hometown, which included a particular band named Deep Purple. Later, Dr. Krott tried his luck as an auctioneer by selling antiquities, but soon realized the potential of concentrating his efforts exclusively on watches. By the mid-70s, when Osvaldo Patrizzi started the Galerie d'Horlogerie Ancienne, which later evolved into Antiquorum in 1978, Dr. Helmut Krott was already active in the auction world with his own Dr. Krott Auktionen based in Aachen, Germany. Dr. Helmut Krott is a gentleman and a true collector and... Above all, a great friend. So, Dr. Krott, welcome to Collectability Podcast. How are you? Fine. Many thanks for this invitation. I'm still there and I'm feeling good. It's excellent to be able to, to talk to you because your knowledge about watchmaking and the history of watches is, is so profound for me. It's always an honor to, to have these opportunities. And let me jump right into the first question. How was the world of watch collecting when you began your auction business? What was the balance at that time, for example, between pocket watches and wristwatches? And most importantly, who was collecting what at that time? Yes, I think the world or the watch market was quite different from what it is today. Wristwatches were practically not showing up in auction catalogs of specialized auctions. The target for the collectors of those days were pocket watches, clocks, some clocks, and sometimes objects de vertu or, for example, snuff boxes, uh, with incorporated maybe with watches. And uh, the focus was mainly on early pocket watches, means 17th and 18th century. The historical relevance of collecting was more important than it is today. But also in those days, there started a change, a change that more and more collectors were looking for more modern timepieces like pocket watches of the late 19th century with complications, precision timekeepers. 
So chronograph, split second, perpetual calendar. Grand complication, of course, was the dream of everybody as long as you could afford it. But also the change was that there was more and more a concern for the collectors on brand names. Mm -hmm. Before the collector was maybe more independent, independent from the mainstream. He looked on a watch. He said, okay, the dial fits. The case fits, the movement fits, looks quite good condition. Even if the, the way today we look on condition people, that was not at all the, in those days. And they decided from the quality of what they saw, the movement was a nice movement, nice finishing and so on. So later on, people were more and more attached to brand name in accordance with complications, precisions, of course, also quality and conditions. I know that by 1977, you were already organizing the first watch-only auctions, something new at the time. Do you remember the most significant timepieces you sold back then? Of course, every beginning is very difficult. I, I was an antique dealer, a hobby antique dealer, and had an auction house for antiques in the beginning. And this was located in my hometown in Aachen. And of course, I had local people who were buying. And I realized that it is very difficult to get attention from, let's say, international clients. So I liked watches. I had the feeling that the Nicole Nielsen I bought, you know, the first watch I bought was a Nicole Nielsen a couple of years before. And I bought it by intuition and it was correct. I went to a sale in Switzerland, a watch sale. I was very impressed. And then I came back with a German dealer who already had an auction house, Mr. Kegelmann. I was sitting in his car and uh, we were discussing. And when I came home, I said, oh, maybe I should try to make a specialized auction. And uh, the problem was, as I said, I had no, no knowledge to find somebody who is doing the description for me, and he is a little bit my mentor in this. So I found the right person, and I started with advertising, and in 77, in November, I did my first auction. And the most important watch I had in those days was a musical watch, pocket watch, with a quarter repeater, and from 1810 or 1820 which was still a classic, you know, and, and, and even for bigger auction houses of these days. So that was the watch. And then there was, of course, my um, pocket watch I bought, the Nickel Nielsen. I had a little bit difficult to let it go, but I said, okay, Helmut, somehow you have to sacrifice something for this sale. And this is probably one of the attractions of the sale, which was more or less the case. So that was the beginning on a quite low level. So we went on step by step. We uh, took a share in the market. And then, for what I know, 1979 was the time when you sold your first wristwatch. It's true. Yeah, this is true. It was 3448 Patek Philippe, perpetual calendar, automatic. At the time, I didn't know the importance, but I was pleased that I had a Patek Philippe watch. It was consigned for me. And it was offered for 12,000 Deutschmarks, which is about 6,000 euros today. And there was no description like reference number, movement number, case number, nothing. There was just perpetual calendar, automatic watch, and so on and so on. But that was the beginning of wristwatches. And you know, Oswaldo Patrizzi Antiquorum or Galerie d'Orlogerie Ancienne 
they did the same thing. So the market was waking up a little bit for that. And then 10 years after, so fast forward to 1989, particularly important date, we had what is still today considered one of the most important auctions in the history of watches. And I'm referring, of course, to the art of Patek Philippe, organized by Patrice's Antiquorum at that time. Yeah. And although it was succeeded a few years later in 1991 by the incredible, the art of Breguet, another very important auction, also by Patrizzi, The first Patek Philippe thematic auction marked in many ways the ascendance of the wristwatch over the pocket watch among collectors. Was this so? All right. First of all, it was a great sale. It was unbelievable. It uh, came together because uh, Patek Philippe celebrated the 150th anniversary. And yes, uh, Oswaldo had this idea with thematic auctions. This was very new, I think, All his competitors got a little bit nervous by saying, what what is are they doing? Is this a new thing now? And uh, we were, were all sitting in the auction sale and waiting what is the result and what will happen, you know. And it was a great success financially. Marketing-wise, it was an unbelievable success because I think Patek was not unhappy. Uh, the quality of the catalog The format of the catalog, all this was different. So Oswaldo put the level very high for all the other competitors. And it was, like I was asking, like a start of the prevalence of the wristwatch over the pocket watch. So it was like a tilting point. 1989, from here on, wristwatch become more important for the majority of buyers and collectors. I, I, I would not say, I don't know if the PPC or the Patek Philippe sale Thomas Waldo was a game changer to the wristwatch mm -hmm. market. I would say since uh, there were specialized sales, the tendency was always to more modern or less historical watches. This is also the fact in other collectible fields. But okay, we saw all of a sudden that wristwatches made high price and a perpetual calendar wristwatch costed much more than a perpetual calendar pocket watch all of a sudden. So, of course, this was somehow a booster effect, yeah. And then in 1991, two years later, it was your turn to organize a thematic auction. And that was also a big step. Uh, this one was dedicated to glasshütte watchmaking. And everybody says it was a big success. It was a success. But then there were other motives for me. You know, there was this historical moment of the drop of the wall of Berlin. There was reunification of Germany. And this was, of course, for me, a moment and a motive to say, now Glashütte is part of the Western world and coming to Germany. And some will go on there. And maybe I can contribute to the future of, of Glashütte. And I also try to motive Mr. Blümlein from IWC on, as we know today, working on a collection of modern wristwatches for the Langer brand. So I tried a little bit to motivate him to support my specialized glass hitter sale. But obviously, I was a little bit too early. As we know, the first collection glass hitter came out in 94. But it was wonderful because uh, in the sale room in those days, there was sitting Mr. Walter Lange in the first row and the major of glass hitter, later director the Glashütte Museum. So it was a, a very festive and historical moment. 
Do you remember at that auction who was the majority of buyers from which nationality? Were there more Germans? It were more Germans, yeah. I had clients from Japan, from America, but it was, let's say, 80% German. One of the other motives for me, Glashütte was not new. I went to Glashütte before the wall of Berlin dropped, and it was a very dangerous trip. I did in 1978-79. I was a little bit naive. I thought I could find important Glashütte watches there because that's the where they come from. I found something very important in a store in Leipzig, in a watch store, But for me, it was a problem how to get this object out of the Democratic Republic. So, I mean, Glasgow for me, this was something very personal also and thrilling. And if we switch back to Patek Philippe, Dr. Krott, you own one of the most important databases regarding Patek Philippe watches. Yeah. If we don't consider, of course, the maker itself in Geneva. And this is a tool available to anyone in need of counseling and information. And we know that the major auction houses of our day don't really hesitate to ask you to access this information. Tell us when, why, and how you started this incredible venture resulting from your 50 years of work and fascination with Patek Philippe. Well, there were several aspects to decide to create a PPC database. And one of the main aspects was my experience with mm -hmm. important client and friend. We, we created his Patek Philippe collection over 10 years in the 90s. And so in this support, of course, there were some problems which you are confronted later on, which is normal. If you buy a collection, you always have things which are not so easy, you know. So when I realized that, I had this challenge to say, now I want to know in any auction, any Patek Philippe watch, where it was before, how many were made, is there any modification on the watch or not? I said, okay, I want to register all watches which have been in the auction the last 50 years. So, of course, this was a titanic work, and I organized and financed this uh, up to date over 20 years. Quite quickly after we started our Patek Philippe database, contact with institutional companies which were interested. The first one was Christie's, followed very quickly by Sotheby's. So at the time, we were really delivering this information to two of the major players in the business. Another reason was that the market in the 90s got more and more detailed on certain references. For example, 1518 yellow gold in the beginning was maybe 10 or 20 percent less expensive than a pink gold one. And a steel one had even less value than a yellow gold one. And then a dial made a change, you know, out of a sudden A two-tone dial was maybe 20 or 30 percent more than a one-tone dial. A pink gold dial was maybe out of a sudden 30 or 40 percent more expensive than a silver one. So all these details and this demand change caused certain players in the market to do some kind of changing of dial and kind of a manipulation, which in, in my service for my collector, I was a little bit concerned. So... There was this price change for little details in the references made it necessary to know how was the watch when it left Patek Philippe 40, 50 years ago, how it looks today, is it the same, or a watch which was in the market, in the auction sale years ago, 
does it now have the same dial? Does it have polished lugs now, more polished than at the time? So from now on, when my database was getting more and more complete, I could right away see, oh, this watch was 25 years ago in, uh, in New York. Now it is in Geneva. And it has this and this kind of change. And this was the information we delivered. But also, we delivered to the companies 1518 in yellow gold was made in 180 pieces. We know for certain reason with my database, we could calculate how much it must be. And then we said, okay, a pink gold is only made 50 pieces. Ah, no, there is a reason why a pink gold might be worth double or triple and so on. So we gave quantities, which you cannot get from Patek Philippe, you know, but for the auctioneers and for the collectors, it was very, very important. But I can say that due to this information the auction house used, the market was protected somehow for not faked watches, just modified watches. The dealers now were thinking twice if they put a watch in because they knew, oh, there's somebody who might tell the auctioneers there is a change and this and that. Of course, adding your database to the fact that uh, Patek Philippe has the most complete record of production of any watch manufacturer with more than 175 years of existence, of course, you were in an excellent position to acquire relevant pieces of this maker over the years. Do you actually have a memory of the most significant Patek Philippe timepieces that you owned over the years that followed? Yes, in 1980 in Ibiza, I was with my very nice Italian customer. He invited me for holiday and some dealer came with a 1518 in steel. Oh, I said, oh, very interesting, but 6,500. Oh, my God. And my friend Luigi said, ah, what is this? This is in steel, you know. He ah, was <laughs> So I'm not sure if he bought it at the end. So the next time I was confronted with a 1518 was uh, in the mid-80s in Monaco in the Orion sale. And uh, that was already 150 or 200,000 maybe already. And then I bought for my customer one in the, in the mid-90s. I bought one. And then I bought another one, the last one, at the end of the 90s from a Turkish client, private client who owned it in his family. And then the price was okay already completely, completely different. But at the time, I could not imagine that this watch would sell for what, $11 million or something. I could really not imagine. But you asked me what kind of watches I had in my collection. I, I, I can go to the Patek Philippe Museum catalog to remember myself, and I find my watches in there, you know. Which is incredible. Yes, my God, this was my watch. Uh, and my favorite pocket watch I sold to Patek was a perpetual calendar, open face, from 1910, and it was dedicated to Gustavo Burmeister. I think Gustavo Burmeister is a famous name in Portugal. Yes, the Burmester, the port wine producers. Yes, so it was for him. It was a special order. And it was some kind of advanced design. So everything was special. The outlay of the perpetual calendar was special. So I sold this watch directly to Patek Philippe. I think I wouldn't sell it today anymore. But then I have another pocket watch, which is now in the Patek Philippe Museum. It's a clock watch with many repeater and royal provenance. And it has an enamel case, engine turned, translucent enamel. It's a very impressive watch. 
I bought this in America at eight o'clock in the morning in a pawn shop in Washington, D.C. I went through the custom to go to my plane and the watch was stolen. I went nuts. I went crazy. You know, this was my best watch. You won't believe it. One year later, I got the watch back. It cost me some money. But anyway, from my first experience to sell a watch to Patek Philippe directly, I said, now I'm a little bit more smart. I understand that Patek Philippe might buy the watch in an auction against competitors. And then price is created by the market, which is probably more interesting than to sell it directly to them. So this watch I sold indirectly to Patek Philippe. And it's now in the museum. So these are the two pocket watches, which I remember. I can imagine you were dealing at the time with uh, Alan Banbury himself. Uh, he invited me for dinner, which was quite nice. So there is uh, first perpetual retrograde calendar from, I think, 1937, which is also a unique piece. And a uh, favorite of mine is a split-second pilot wristwatch, reference 2512 with black dial something like 42 millimeters or 45 millimeters. And I bought this watch in Düsseldorf from a jewelry producer. And I remember I came home, I said, my God, is this watch right? You, see, you never see this. This is impossible, you know. What is it? But I think I paid 25,000 Deutschmarks, you know. It was a lot, a lot of money. I put it in my sale and I made a small profit. <laughs> Very humble. <laughs> no, really, you made a small profit. My customer, Luigi Calvazina, Italian customer, bought it. And then it surfaced up in Italian sale. And then I, I had it a second time. And then it was more or less uh, 500,000 or 600,000. And then it ended up with Patek Philippe at the end. You know, this is a one of a kind. You find five Patek Philippe steel, 1518. You find 60, 1518 in pink gold. This you will never, never, ever find, you know, and impressive. But my most favorite wristwatch is a 1526 perpetual calendar in steel, the only one. To go back to the other one, the split second, it's marked in the catalog that this watch was taken by Patek to create the 5070 chronograph in 1998. So this I like also very much that the watches they bought, that they were used to create a new model 40 or 50 years later. So now we are on the steel perpetual 1526. Normally the 1526 is a nice watch. It's interesting from the history, it's perpetual, but it's not so impressive. I don't know why this 1526, which is the same reference, of course it is in steel, it has so many small details, you know. It is purist. It, it, it is something, wow. And uh, it had a history because it was ordered by an American, I think, uh, car racer. And uh, this watch had many very, very little small details, which makes it for somebody with an kind of an aesthetic view special. And Patek Philippe bought it at the end, and it was a big fight in the sale. It was sold by Christie's many, many years ago. And now it's in the book and still like to see it, you know. And then another important watch I sold to them also indirectly by my Italian customer was a minute repeater wristwatch, of course, with enamel dial, very rare, 25, 24-1. What I like also with that watch, probably... It's unique. I don't know with this enamel dial in those days, but it is also a kind of a, of a model for Patek Philippe to create 
the famous reference 3979 minute repeater, which they made also in the 90s. So a couple of my watches were also used to create new references. Uh, it is nice to see the babies uh, in a museum catalog and you still get excited about it, you know. <laughs> Exactly. And I'm remembering that 1992, you were entrusted by a collector to set up one of the most important Patek Philippe collections of its time. And that was a task uh, you executed until 1999, almost a decade. It seems uh, like we saw now by your description that some of those pieces uh, ended up in Philippe Museum. But that experience was incredible in terms of having a customer where you have almost carte blanche to go and buy and set up a collection. So there was some criteria you had to develop with him in terms of how this collection would be built. It was an ongoing story, but trust from both sides was for me the fundamental base for the great success of this collaboration, a win-win situation, we would say. It started that the client showed up in my auction sales room and he bought normal watches for 2,000, 5,000, uh, maybe 10,000, you know. And so I went to London for a sale and I saw this customer buying a Patek Philippe watch for a high price, much higher than he used to buy from me. And the problem was the dial, enamel Masonic dial on a Calatrava 96 something that was not original. I knew this. I said, oh my God, he bought this watch with this problem and he's for sure he's not aware about it you know how what can i do so i cannot go to him and say hey, you bought a wrong watch i have a problem and you know no by chance i knew a person who was in very good contact with him and i told this person your friend needs help i think he needs help really you know the next day my beloved customer called me and said oh mr crud it's very nice you are willing to help me you know what he told me <laughs> what he said to me he said I don't know anything about watches, but I like them. So we made an arrangement, everything very easy going. And uh, then I started to buy for him. He was knowledgeable about auction sales because he was a big collector of uh, important paintings of 20th century. So step by step, we went to buy watches for higher price, ending up with the most expensive and six-digit one. And it was nice. We were on the telephone. I told him the watch is estimated so much. We can go double or we can go triple. And then it came to this. Uh, Patek Philippe was against us. And of course, all of a sudden, the limit was reached. And then, he, okay, we go on. Come on. Come on. We go on, you know. <laughs> and, and very often we got what we wanted. Very often, yeah. So that was a nice experience. But it was really a question of trust, complete trust, you know. And then we entered the new millennium and the type of collector changed dramatically. So we had a 20th century kind of collector and then suddenly we had new people coming in and we can say that the 21st century, something changed. Yeah. Michael Tay from Hourglass in Singapore stated in an interview, you know, all of a sudden young kids, maybe 16, 17, 18 year old showed up in his store with a T-shirt, and looked on watches uh, with six-digit numbers, you know, 100,000, 200,000, 300,000. 
and they had the fun to buy them, to wear them. And maybe two or three years later, they sell them again, even for a loss, and they buy something new. And these are also this generation digital natives, which buy in the online sales watches they never had in their hands. And they see it as a part of their portfolio. They communicate on other levels, you know, Pinterest or Facebook and all these kind of platforms. They communicate and they get excited one against each other. Of course, it's a different world. We go to the auction sale in Geneva to Christie's, Sotheby's, Antiquorum, Phillips and sit there and have the watches in our hands and look with the loop. Oh, you see this and you see that. And then we see in the restaurant friends and we say, did you see this watch? Yes. So... Now, that's the way. And there's a lot of money. These young people, we know some examples, they became millionaires within a couple of years. No, incredible people. Uh, in a certain way, they buy what they like exclusively without worrying too much about all the other aspects of the watch. But unfortunately, we do have some knowledgeable collectors who do have an interest about the details and the history of the watches. Maybe in some point, they are more going to details, certain details, which are maybe not the details we were looking at, but they are going into details, which you say, oh my God, you know, uh, the three from Rolex uh, is a little bit more open or closed, and that's why the watches maybe were three times more, you know. All right, but, <laughs> you know, I, I also try to buy a Rolex, and I have to see what these people say, or, or I'm an old knacker, you know, which I am. <laughs> I still want to fight with these young kids, you know. <laughs> it's a never-ending fight in a certain way. <laughs> no, it's a never-ending fight. But that brings me to people. And throughout your career, Dr. Cott, you actually met the most interesting people. One of them was Monsieur Roger Dubuis, I remember you telling me, who actually, and that is almost an anecdote, acted many times as a key Patek Philippe consultant to you personally. Yes, right. It was not only Roger. It was a kind of a new area when I met uh, Roger in about 1980. Roger left Patek Philippe. And this was also the time from Sven Andersen, mm -hmm. Frank Müller, and later on Francois Paul Jouan or Carrie Wuttenheim, which was a little bit later. But maybe there was a crisis. All these very talented watchmakers, somehow they said, okay, like I know from Roger Dubuis when he came from Patek Philippe. You sit at home and you repair watches to make a living, you know. So anyway, in my time, in the 80s, I met Roger Dubuis in the context that I bought a very unusual Patek Philippe watch in a show in America, which was, at the first glance, a perpetual calendar automatic watch. But when I opened it up, there was no rotor in it, you know. And I said to myself, what is that? Something wrong with this watch. And then I had to pay double price. Oh, maybe it's very unique about something incredible. Okay, I take the risk. I bought the watch. I went back to Europe and I said, who can give me the information? I knew that Patek doesn't give you this kind of information, which I wanted to have. So I saw Roger in Rue des Maraîchers in uh, Geneva in his workshop. And I said, Mr. Dewey, uh, I bought this watch. What do you think? Oh, he said, oh, I remember very well. <laughs> I had it in my hands on the bench, you know. I said, what? Yeah, we made three. Thank you very much, Mr. Dewey. Goodbye. I said, okay, I have a Patek Philippe wristwatch, three pieces only, and I knew I didn't make a mistake. So later on, I turned back to Roger several times to ask him if I had a problem, technical problem with a watch. And he was a very helpful, nice man. And he gave information. He respected that he had a 
certain uh, responsibility against Patek Philippe. But it was nice to have this kind of link or this kind of information. But I know another great personality you met and that meeting brought you to the point where you took up Urban Jürgensen from him and uh, actually resaved the brand. And I'm talking about Peter Baumberger, the guy who actually reinitiated the adventure with Urban Jürgensen. And tell us a little bit about Peter Baumberger. He was an incredible personality. Well, I met Peter Baumberger under special circumstances. I met him in 1975. I was a complete newcomer in the field of watch collecting in those days. Nobody knew me. At the time, I was still working as an MD in the university hospital of my hometown, Aachen. I went to Zurich to my first watch sale in Aachen. And the only person who took notice of me was Peter Baumberger, you know. He said, oh, hello, and he made some of his jokes. He liked to make this kind of jokes. But very personal, the heart on the right place, empathy. And, of course, I was right away impressed by his personality. That was the beginning of our friendship. And very little later, I met Derek Pratt, because Derek was his master watchmaker. And Peter Baumberger, in the first years of my auction sale, was my main consigner. He was one of the most important antique watch dealers in those days. He bought uh, the most complicated Vacheron. He bought the most important Langesöhner watch in the sales. So Peter Baumberger was a friend, but also somebody. I got very important watches for my sale. And of course, this was uh, important to get known on the market very quickly. Then I saw that Peter Baumberger sold his complete collection of antique watches to finance the buy of Urban Jürgensen and to finance the first production line. That means the reference one with the full calendar chronograph and then the perpetual calendar, reference number two. So uh, somehow my source seemed to be go away. But I followed the development of Peter's work as an entrepreneur, as an owner of a premium watch brand. And I, I realized very quickly there were details. I was very impressed. It started with the buckle of the bracelet. It went on with the crown of the watch. It went on with the hands, the engine turn dial made by Derek Pratt. And for example, the hands were for me the best I've ever seen. So I, I saw this and I liked this very much. It didn't last very long time that I started to support Peter. Now I gave him back what he gave to me and helped him to finance his dreams. Then there was a major change in need of financial support. I told Peter, you are a premium brand. You have these wonderful watches, cases, bracelets, uh, dials, hands, but you still have movements you buy which you upgrade, but still they are not movements from Urban Jürgensen. And this might be for a collector, your brand, a handicap. So I think you should create your own caliber. And Peter didn't tell me over years that he really was in it, but I, I realized he needed more and more money. And somewhere in the middle of the 2000, he told me, Almut, uh, here is my business plan for my new caliber, and we want this and we want that. Then we have this uh, detent escapement, so it's unique on the market. And I, I financed the company for, for years. First, 
Peter said, no, we have the prototypes. In two or three months, we have the Basel Fair, and I will present the new caliber, the new prototypes, public and market. And I said, yeah, Peter, fine. Show me what is your promotion marketing idea, how you will marketing this. Oh, I have the watches on my wrist, and I say, hey, see what I have, you know. So we decided at the end, we don't show it in Basel Fair. That was in 2010. We don't show these watches in Basel Fair. We are not prepared for the marketing. And this was a very sad story. Two months later, Peter passed away. So I was, from one day to the other, confronted with the situation. And uh, in 2011, the next Basel Fair, mm-hmm. I presented the new collection, the prototypes with a marketing. I had a marketing lady and you were one of the people who were in between this list who gave us this possibility to present the new line or this new prototype. I mean, uh, this was uh, a very challenging situation for me and I was decided that this brand will go on and this fantastic story, 240 years of history, will not end with me, Helmut Krott, uh, even if I was not planned to become CEO of this brand. But uh, there I was, you know. And what a great job it was. More recently, you published an incredible book, unfortunately only in French, although it's a convenient language for all that is beautiful. And unfortunately, it's also completely sold out. So there are many people who are looking for this book. It's called Le Cadran, and it's an impressive 392-page long look into the art and technique of dial making and includes the Stern Frère company's history. The Swiss dial maker, as everybody knows, was a long-standing supplier of Patek Philippe. It was also owned by Charles and Jean Stern, who ended up acquiring Patek Philippe and company during the troubled times of the enterprise. Tell us a little more about this book and the Stern Frère company in particular, which you describe in the book so well. Well, my book project developed in the context of my Patek Philippe database, on one hand, and also in the context of my Urban Jürgensen mission. One of the targets of the Patek Philippe database was to describe, identify, and register the type of dial, as I told you before. As we all know today, the dial sells the watch and makes the difference in the price very often. During our work, we realized very well that most of the Patek Philippe dials from 1900 to 1980 were made by Stern Frere or Stern Creation, as the company was called later on. Another fact was that Oban Jürgensen and me as a CEO of Oban Jürgensen tried to become a client of Stern, which was not so easy because we ordered 10 dials and normally a company like Stern with 10 dials, they cannot make a living or it's not interesting for them. And then as I was personally involved in creation and fabrication of dials, I started to understand the complexity of dial making. So that gave me a little bit the grip and the interest on this scene. And in the discussion with my friends from Stern, they explained me some of the details, which then you can understand why Stern dials had a a special magic touch. I also had the possibility to learn to know the technical director of Stern Creation, Mr. René Beresville. He was there over 40 years. And a magic name, Roland Till, 
who was a creative director, and he started in Stern in 1944. So when I met him, he was 85 years old, full of anecdotes, full of technical details and histories, unbelievable. And then there was a Mr. Frederick Gurry, he was a project manager. So I had these contacts. I got this passion to do this project. And for three or four years, I went to Geneva every week, two or three days. My main interlocuteur was Mr. Roland Till. So you cannot expect that somebody in this business, let's say like Philippe Dufour, Roland Till is a little bit the Philippe Dufour of the dial making, that you say, hey, come on, sit down and tell me all about your experience, how you made it and what you made and so on and so on. And within one week, they tell you everything. No, no, you go there. Hello, you start slowly and you get step by step their confidence and step by step they tell you something. In my situation, it took four years. I was, of course, very happy to bring this to a happy end. And I was very happy about the reaction of the market. I sold more books to the Middle East and the Far East than I sold to the European market. We had the possibility to disassemble the most important wristwatches you can imagine today, which are seven digits, uh, which cost today millions of dollars. And even today, a cold chill runs down my spine when I think what could have happened when we took off the dial. I mean, crack or something, and the watch uh, was probably not possible to sell anymore. <laughs> incredible story, Dr. Krott. I was telling before, you are really an incredible person in terms of our watchmaking world, because there are not that many people who started buying, went into auctions, were a dealer, wrote books, advised collectors, and so on and so on. It's incredibly rare to find someone with such a, a large perspective of the market. And even though historically you went through several periods of what we consider collecting watches, it's like a puzzle. You have many pieces that make up an image of what it's all about. So, Dr. Kott, one last question, and a very simple one. Pocket or wristwatch? Let's say, do you prefer an industrialized CNC-made watch or a watch which is made by hand, by tools or hand finish? And then it could be a pocket watch and it could be a wristwatch. And you can imagine my answer. I prefer handmade watch, which there is not a complete and exact cut, you know. The thing is also that there are not many artists left to, who can do this. For example, for me, Derek Pratt is or was one of the most complete watchmakers in the last decades of the 20th century who could really do all these kind of finishing, engine turning, many of these details. When I see two billion with a cage cut off, very light, polished by hand and mirror polished by Derek Pratt, Or let's say a tobillion by Professor Halvik, last year, flying tobillion. This is wonderful, and I'm sorry, I doubt that this you will find in any tobillion wristwatch today. 
I have a lot of respect for art of industry, even if I don't understand maybe all of that. But I understand that it's not so easy to say industry. But we know the facts in the market and also no company can live from a talented watchmaker who is doing hand finishing and so on. The companies live from production quantities. They have to pay their people, you know. No, absolutely, Dr. Krutz. This was a great honor and uh, indeed a most enjoyable conversation. I hope that everyone who is listening had the same fun uh, we did. Thank you so much for talking to me and to the followers of Collectability Podcast, Herr Krutz. Thank you for me to go in the past <laughs> and find all these things. Thanks uh, for this invitation again and all the best to you. Bye-bye. This was the second episode in our Collectability Podcast series. Thank you all for listening. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. And also remember, following us on any podcast player you enjoy using in order not to miss our future recordings. Thank you very much for listening. This is Carlos Torres for Collectability. <laughs>